Well, today we're continuing our Colossians Bible study called Established in Grace. It's teaching number 13. And today we're going to look at if you continue in the faith. It's really one of the most difficult, I think, to understand passages when you read commentaries or you read opinions or articles or blogs about it. There's a lot of different opinions about this particular verse, Colossians 1.23. But I think we're going to look at it, and I think we're going to, we're going to come away with an understanding of it that's hopefully more clear and biblically focused. But let's start by reading Colossians 1, 21 through 23. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your, in your, that's what the NIV says, but the word your is not in the, in the Greek language. If you continue in the faith, established and firm, and not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So what I want us to do in this study is we're going to ask a series of questions, and then we're going to have a series of answers that will hopefully help us understand these verses. We've already looked at Colossians 1, 21, and 22 in a previous study. Mostly we're going to focus in on Colossians 1, 23. But just to review real quick what was happening in Colossae, but remember they were battling philosophism, which is the different thoughts and ideas about God, life, the world, the universe. They were asking, can you know God? Does God even exist? What really matters? What's the meaning of life? What happens when we die? Is there an afterlife? Is there reincarnation? That's philosophy. Also in Colossae was Judaism, which is seeking to gain God's forgiveness and acceptance through the observance of religious days and practices based upon the law of Moses. They were also facing spiritualism and mysticism in Colossae which is seeking to connect with God through spiritual and mystical experiences, a deeper meaning to scripture, a deeper life, higher levels. They were also battling legalism in Colossae. This was being taught, seeking to gain God's acceptance through rules and regulations. And then they were battling asceticism, which is attempting to gain God's acceptance and to connect with God through self-denial, self-discipline, If you notice, one of the things that all of these have in common, asceticism, legalism, spiritualism, mysticism, Judaism, and philosophism, what all of them have in common is man's attempt to connect with God, man's attempt to gain acceptance with God, to connect with God, to come in right standing or right favor with God. It's all man's attempts. It's all man's works. It's the very opposite of the gospel. It's the very opposite of faith. They're all based upon works, man's knowledge, man's work, man's efforts. All right, so we were going to start this study by asking some questions, and we'll continue the questions all the way through the study. So the first question we want to ask as it relates to Colossians 1.23 is, what does it mean to continue in the faith? And remember, the word your is not there. It's not continuing your faith. It's continuing the faith. So what does it mean to continue in the faith? Well, the Greek word here means to remain, abide, or stay in the faith. It's, 
It's used to remain in, abide in, stay in the faith. So Colossians 1.23 says, if you continue, that means if you remain in, if you abide in, if you stay in the faith, not your faith, but stay in the faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Then God will present you holy and blameless and free from accusation is the context. So the question is, what does it mean to continue in the faith? What does it mean to remain in the faith or abide in the faith or to stay in the faith? I think First John 2.19 gives us a really good example of what it means to not remain in the faith. And if we know what it means to not remain in the faith, then we'll know what it means to remain in the faith or to stay in the faith or to continue in the faith. So first John chapter two, verse 19 reads this way it says they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So we see here, we see the word they, they went out from us, they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. There's the word remained, but their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. So also is the word us. So the word they and the word us. So the question is, in first john who is the they and who is the us well in context of the whole book the us are those who believe that jesus is the christ the promised one of god from the jewish scriptures who would be the light of the world he would be the savior of the world as the light of the world he would rescue the world from darkness as the savior of the world he would rescue the world from death the us are those who believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, in the context of 1 John, the us are those who believe Jesus is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Uh, the us are those who believe in his work on the cross. They believe that Jesus died for the sins of all people and that his blood purifies from all sins. So that's the us. The us there are believers in Jesus. Now, in John chapter 20, verse 31, John wrote these words. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah or Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, you may have life in his name. Now, remember, prior to Jesus leaving earth, prior to his crucifixion, his resurrection and his ascension, he encouraged his disciples to remain in him. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, then you will bear much fruit. Were the words there were the words about him being the Messiah, him being the Christ, him being the son of God, him being the son of man. And he's encouraging his disciples because they're still battling with who, who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Remember, even after Jesus arose from the dead, Thomas, is, he was doubting the identity of Jesus. So the disciples were trying to figure out exactly who is Jesus. Is he the Christ of the Jewish scriptures? Is he the Messiah of the Jewish scriptures? Is he the light of the world predicted in the Jewish scriptures? Is he the savior of the world predicted in the Jewish scriptures? Just who is Jesus? That was also going on after Jesus ascended and he went into heaven. All over these 
cities where churches were being planted. Teachers were coming in and they were denying that Jesus was the Messiah. They were denying he was the Christ. They were denying that he was the light of the world. They were denying that he was the savior of the world. They were denying that his blood purified from all sins. They were denying his resurrection. There was people claiming to know God who John says are antichrists. They were denying the cross and they were denying that Jesus was the Christ, which that's who the they are in 1 John chapter 2. The us are those who believe and the they are these false teachers. They're the opponents of, of Jesus. They're against Jesus. That's why John calls them antichrist in 1 John chapter 2. So let's ask this question. Who are the they in 1 John 2, 19? They went out from us. All right. The us is the body of believers who believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. The apostles believe this. That they were the false teachers who were seeking to lead the believers away from the truth that Jesus was the Messiah or seeking to lead those who were on the fence away from the truth that Jesus is the Christ. So the they, who are the they? The they are those who are anti-Christ and anti-cross. As Antichrist, they rejected Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and they rejected him as the Son of Man. Son of God being 100% God, Son of Man being 100% man. So the they are those who rejected the identity of Jesus as the Christ. They were just like the Pharisees during the days of Jesus while he was on earth. They rejected Jesus as the Christ. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They were also anti-cross, which is they rejected the blood of Jesus as the way to be clean before God, and they embraced a system of religious works. That's what was going on in the book of Hebrews. They were rejecting the blood of Christ. They were rejecting the identity of Jesus. They were rejecting him as son of God. They were rejecting him as son of man, and they were back under the law of Moses. They were seeking to gain acceptance and forgiveness with God through the Mosaic law through the blood of animals and through all the rules and the regulations uh, of the old covenant of law. All right. So we're looking at what does it mean to remain? So to remain or to continue is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's to make a decision that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. All right. We're going to look at this further on down as we move into our study. All right, question number two I want us to look at is what is the faith? If you continue in 123, if you continue in the faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So the question is, what is the faith that they were to abide in? What's the faith that they were to remain in or to stay in? Remember, the ones in First John who didn't remain with the group were unbelievers. Uh, the unbeliever won't remain. The unbeliever won't stay. The unbelieving teacher, the false teachers, were unbelievers who didn't remain with the believers because they denied the identity of Jesus. They were antichrist. They were anti-cross, all right? So if you remain, if you abide, if you stay in the faith, so the question is, what is the faith in this verse? Faith is the set of truths about the gospel. The faith, if you remain, abide, stay in the faith, 
established and firm in the faith and do not move away from the hope held out in the gospel. So the faith here is the gospel. The faith equals the gospel. It's the same thing. The faith is the set of truths about the gospel, which then leads us to another question. Well, what is the gospel? If the faith is the set of truths about the gospel, then what is the gospel? What are these sets of truth? And we find this up in Colossians 1, 3 through 7. Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, the faith and love proceeding from the hope stored up for you in heaven, of which you have already heard in the word of truth. So we have the phrase, the word of truth, and he defines the word of truth here as the gospel that has come to you. So the word of truth is the gospel that has come to you. It says all over the world, this gospel, the word of truth, is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. What is the it? The it is the word of truth. The it is the gospel. So it's been growing and bearing fruit just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood the grace of God, or in the Greek here, it's understood God's grace in all of its truth, a set of truth. So we see here that the gospel is the truth of the grace of God. So it says the word of truth, which is the gospel, and the gospel is the grace of God, the the truth about the grace of God. So the gospel is the truth of God's grace. The gospel equals the truths of the grace of God in the context where Paul was writing. So Paul is telling his readers to not move away from the gospel of grace. He's telling them to be established in the gospel of grace, to stand firm in the gospel of grace. At the same time, I think he understands that there are those within the group that he's writing to who may not remain in these truths. They may be unbelievers who are on the fence about who Jesus is, much like the disciples were, just like the group in 1 John was. Who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Does his blood cleanse from all sins? Did he rise from the dead? Is he going to return? They're they're trying to figure all this out. What's the truth here? So Paul is writing to a group of people some who are already believers, some who they're not sure yet, they're checking it out, and some who are, who, un, who are unbelievers, that's in every church in America. In every church in America, you have believers, you have unbelievers, and we have those who are in process of trying to figure this out. They're just in process of trying to figure out truth. All right, that would be the same group that Paul would be writing to in Colossae. And in and, and most of Paul le- his letters, most of the time he is addressing believers, but there are times he addresses unbelievers. And we'll look at that momentarily when he does that in 2 Corinthians. All right. So now it leads to the, this next question. If the faith that they are to remain in, if the faith that they're to continue in is the gospel, and the gospel is the set of truths about the grace of God, that leads us to question number four, which is this. What is the grace of God? The gospel of grace is the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. That's the gospel of grace. What is the gospel of grace? Well, 
the gospel of grace is the set of truths. It's the message, the set of truths about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So remember in Colossae, there's a lot of different teachings that are, that are going around the city of Colossae. And Paul is writing to communicate a set of truths about who God really is because they're trying to figure it out in Colossae, all, all these different teachers. They're trying to figure out what is the truth. So Paul writes this letter to help the believers understand the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And he also knows that those who receive this letter, some are going to be unbelievers and some are going to be in process of trying to figure out the truth. So this leads us to question number five. If the gospel of grace is the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, then that leads us to question number five, which is, well, who is Jesus? That's debated today among scholars and ordinary people. Who is Jesus? They were debating the identity of Jesus back during the days of Jesus on earth. They were debating the identity of Jesus when he rose from the dead. They continued to debate the identity of Jesus after he ascended into heaven. You know, as you read in the book of Acts, you can see that there's a debate going on and Paul's trying to convince people that Jesus is the Christ. Peter's trying to convince people that Jesus is the Christ. The other apostles are seeking to convince people that Jesus is the Christ. So there's major discussions after Jesus ascended into heaven, just who is Jesus? Well, Paul lays out who Jesus is in the book of Colossians. He defines and describes who Jesus is. And he says, Jesus is both the son of God, meaning he's 100% God, and he's the son of man. He's 100% human. That's what the word Christ means. He's He's the son of God who's going to be the savior of the world. He's the son of God and the son of man who's going to rule the world as king, the Christ. So Paul addresses who is Jesus. Jesus is both the son of God and the son of man. Jesus died for all of our sins. Then he physically rose from the dead and he will return to establish his kingdom on earth. Let's look at what Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 15 through 18 about the identity of Jesus. So the son is the image of the invisible God. That means Jesus is the revealer of God because Jesus is God. He reveals God to the human race. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn here means the ruler over all creation. For in him, all things were created. So Jesus is the revealer. He's the ruler and he's the creator. He's the creator of things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he's the sustainer. He's the revealer, the ruler, the creator, the sustainer of all things. And he is the head of the body of the church, which means he's the leader of the church. He is the beginning and firstborn. This means the first person who ever rose from the dead and never died again. I mean, Lazarus was not the firstborn. He rose from the dead because Jesus called him forth from the tomb, but Lazarus died again. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first one who ever arose from the dead and never died again. That means he's the originator of new life. He gives us new life. We've been made alive with Christ. We've been brought from death to life. So he's the first one who's gone from death 
to life. So he's the originator of new life. So here's what Paul's saying about Jesus. He's the revealer. He's the ruler. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the leader. And he's the originator. All right. In Colossians 2, 2 through 3, Paul says, the mystery of God, namely Christ, or who is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, or all the wisdom about God, all the knowledge about God is found in Jesus. Jesus is God, and contained in Jesus is the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God. Everything we want to know about God is found in Jesus. Jesus has revealed God to us. He's the creator, the sustainer, the revealer, all the things we looked at previously. All right, in Colossians 2.9, Paul says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Paul is saying that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is God, the creator of all things. Question number six we want to look at is what has Jesus done for us? So the gospel message of grace is who is Jesus and what has Jesus done for us? Who is Jesus is his identity. What has he done for us is his accomplishments. It's the grace of God toward humanity. And Paul writes about that in Colossians 1, 12 through 14. And he says, given thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what has Jesus done for us? The father through Jesus has provided for you and me the full payment for sins. That's redemption and complete forgiveness of sins. That's release. We've been released from the payment because our payment has been redeemed. It's been paid in full. And if you notice here, look who's doing all the work. Look who's putting in all the effort. Giving thanks to the Father because it's the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. And he qualified us through Jesus. It's the Father who's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. It's the Father who's brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And it's the Father whom through Jesus has provided forgiveness of our sins through the full payment of our sins, which then is what qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. It's what qualified us to be rescued from the dominion of darkness. It's what qualified us to be brought into the kingdom of his beloved sons. He's the one who qualified us. We don't qualify ourselves to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do. That's what the mystics and the spiritualists in Colossae were trying to do. It's what the legalists were trying to do. It's what those who were in Judaism were trying to do. It's what the philosophers were trying to figure out. Every one of them were trying to qualify themselves to somehow get connected to God. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is God qualifying us through what Jesus did for us on the cross. And this qualification is what we call grace. It's, it's his work. It's his effort. It's what he's done. And you and I place our faith. We trust in what God has done for us in Christ. Now, Colossians 1, 21 through 22 says, once you, that's the Gentiles, are really the entire world, 
once you were alienated, Ephesians 2.12 talks about the Gentiles were at one time alienated from God. And so if we're going to understand uh, verse 23, which is if you continue in the faith, we've got to understand verses 21 and 22, which once you, the Gentiles, were alienated, that means you were disconnected from God, you were separated from God, without hope in the world, didn't even know who God was. The Jewish people had been given all these revelation, which is where we find these in, in the Jewish scriptures. The Gentiles had no knowledge of who God was. The Jews were to be a light. The nation of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles to reveal to them who, who God was. But once you, the Gentiles, were alienated, separated, disconnected from God, and you were hostile in your minds because of your evil deeds. We looked at this in a few Bible studies back a couple weeks ago. But now God has reconciled you, the Gentiles, and really the world. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, unblemished, and blameless in his presence. So the heart of God is to present each of us holy before him, unblemished before him, blameless before him. We don't present ourselves holy before God. We don't present ourselves clean before God. We don't present ourselves perfect before God. We don't present ourselves sinless before God. If we could, we don't need Jesus. But God, through Jesus, has made it possible for him to present us. God presents us holy before himself, unblemished before himself, and blameless in his presence. God's the one who does this. That's why it's called grace. We don't do it. We can't do it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God has justified us freely by his grace through Christ, through faith in what he's done, or through believing in what he's done. I think one of the common mistakes people make when they read Colossians 1, 21 through 22, when they see this word reconciled, they automatically assume salvation, that Paul is addressing believers who've been reconciled to God. And that's one of the first mistakes I think Bible teachers do, is they read this word reconciled, and they automatically assume that this group of people whom he's referring to in Colossians 1, 21 through 23 is believers. What I want us to see is this word reconciled, when Paul uses it in Corinthians chapter 5, that has nothing to do with salvation. It does have everything to do with salvation, but reconciliation doesn't mean a person is saved. Let me show you what I mean. Reconciliation is, is the process that leads to salvation, but in and of itself, reconciliation is not salvation. Just because somebody's been reconciled to God doesn't mean they're saved. All right, let's see what Paul means here. Reconciliation is the act of God where through Jesus, he completely removes the sin barrier that once stood between himself and people, keeping them from being in a relationship with him. So reconciliation is the removal of the sin that stood between God and humanity. Now opening the way or clearing the way for people to be in relationship with God. So reconciliation is available to all people but it must be accepted individually through faith in Jesus. 
Let's look what Paul writes about with reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Paul says this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's exactly what Paul was writing about in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So what was it that God did for us through Jesus that has become the ministry or the message of reconciliation? And here's what it is. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So reconciliation is our sins were counted against Christ. There are no more sins left to be counted against anybody in the entire world. Our sins were accounted against Christ. The sins of the world were placed upon Jesus. Our past sins, our present sins, and the future sins of the world were all placed upon Jesus. All of our sins were counted against him. Therefore, that's why Paul can say God's not counting our sins against us. All right, that's the message of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself or making it possible for people to be in relationship with himself by removing the obstacle that stood between he and people, and that obstacle was sin. So the obstacle of sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus. All of our sins were counted against Jesus. They were nailed to the cross. That obstacle has now been removed. No sin can keep a person from being reconciled to God. No sin can keep a person from being in relationship with God because God has nailed all of our sins to the cross. So we're looking at what is, what is reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God reconciled us. That's the world. The world has been reconciled to God, but that doesn't mean everybody in the world is saved. That's why I was saying earlier, reconciliation is not salvation. It can lead to salvation, but reconciliation is always a two-way street. Both people, for complete reconciliation to happen, both people have to come together. So God's come all the way to humanity. That's what grace is. He stepped out of heaven to earth, went to the cross, took our sins upon himself, and he's come all the way to us, having removed the barrier of sin, and now he allows people to make their own decisions of whether they want to be in relationship with him. Do they want to be reconciled to him? And this is what Paul writes about. God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is where we see that reconciliation requires both parties for it to be fulfilled. God has moved all the way to us in Christ, having removed the sin that would have separated humanity from himself. But notice what Paul says here. We implore you on Christ's behalf. So in this letter to those in Corinth, 
in Second Corinthians, there are those who are reading this letter who have not come to faith in Christ yet. Paul understands he's writing to a mixed body of believers here. Many who read Second Corinthians had come to faith in Christ, but he also understands that there are some who haven't come to faith in Christ, and in context, they're still living under the old covenant of law. They're still in denial about who Jesus is, the Christ. They're still in denial about what the new covenant has accomplished. They're rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting the blood of Christ. They're rejecting the person of Christ. They're anti-Christ and they're anti-cross in the context of who Paul is writing about. Not necessarily writing to, but writing about. It says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So that's the decision that an unbeliever has to make in order to complete reconciliation. Am I going to receive? Am I going to trust? Am I going to place my faith in what Jesus has done for me on the cross? Or am I going to reject what Jesus has done for me? Am I going to reject the identity of Christ? Am I going to reject the accomplishments of Christ? All right, look in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2. And remember, when the Bible was written, there was no... 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. It, it was just all written. There were no verses. So in what we see as 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2, it was just a complete thought. So Paul is continuing his thought from 2 Corinthians 5, 18, and he's moving into, really he's continuing his thought from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. He's talking about the new covenants replace the old covenant. He's talked about that in the face of Jesus, we see God. He's talked about the accomplishments of Jesus and the identity of Jesus. As an ambassador of Christ, he's proclaiming to unbelievers to come to faith in Christ. So he writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2, as God's co-workers, that's Paul and his missionary team who were sent out to teach the gospel of grace and to proclaim the gospel of grace to people, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive. Now, this word receive in the Greek language means to hear about, but not combine with faith. You receive it, you hear it, but but, but don't reject it, is what Paul is saying here. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive or not to hear about this message of grace and then not combine it with faith. We, We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, God's grace would be 2 Corinthians 3 all the way to what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That's the gospel of grace that that Paul has been writing about. And he's asking those who are reading this letter who are unbelievers not to reject that message, not to reject that the new covenant has replaced the old covenant and that Jesus, when you see Jesus, you see God. And he said, don't reject those messages. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. That means to reject the gospel of grace. For he says, now Paul quotes out of the Jewish scriptures, because a lot of those in Corinth who were going to read this letter were Jewish. They would have understood Isaiah 49.8. So Paul quotes Isaiah 49.8. In the time of my favor, that's grace. In the time of my grace, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. And then Paul finishes up in 2 Corinthians 6.2. I tell you, 
now is the time of God's favor, or now is the time of God's grace, and now is the day of salvation. So the people whom Paul was writing to, and he quoted Isaiah 49, 8, in the time of my favor I heard you, in the day of salvation I helped you, that's referring to the new covenant of grace. And what Paul is saying to these Jewish people who were very familiar with Jewish scripture, that they were living in the days of the new covenant that Jeremiah pointed to, that Isaiah pointed to. They were living in the days of the new covenant of grace where salvation is by faith. Salvation is by the blood of Christ. Salvation is based upon what Jesus did for us. And God's not counting our sins against us anymore. And so he tells them, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. He's asking them to trust in Jesus. He's asking them to place their faith in Jesus. All right. So we see here that just because God has reconciled people to himself, the people whom he's reconciled to himself are not yet reconciled to God. A person's not reconciled to God until they trust in Jesus and the fact that all of our sins were counted against Jesus. So when we read Colossians chapter 1, 22, and Paul uses the word reconcile, it doesn't mean that those whom he's writing to are about in Colossians chapter 1, 21 through 23. It doesn't mean those who have been reconciled to God have yet trusted in Christ. And I think that's going to shine some light on Colossians 1, 23 momentarily. So as a reminder, we're looking at what, what is the gospel? What is grace? Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done for us? Because that's the set of truth that is the faith that Paul is writing for these people who are hearing, who are reading his letter to stay in that set of truth, to remain in that set of truth. Don't leave that set of truth. And remember in 1 John chapter 2, those who left, they left a set of truth. They, they didn't remain in a set of truth because they rejected that truth. They rejected Jesus was the Christ. They rejected Jesus was the Messiah. They rejected the blood of Christ purifies from all sins. They rejected the resurrection of Jesus. And so they didn't remain because they didn't believe. So let's continue to look at what is the gospel? What is grace? Who is Jesus? And what has Jesus done for us? Paul says in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He is taking these charges that were against us, these sin charges that were against us. He's taking these charges He's taking it away, nailing it to the cross. So our sin charges were nailed to the cross. That's why God's not counting all of our sins against us. That's why God's not counting any of our sins against us, because all of our sins were nailed to the cross. There's no debt left to be paid. All right, so Paul is, is communicating the gospel in Colossians, trying to help people understand that it's not what you do, it's what he's done for you. And faith receives what grace has achieved. Just as a reminder in Colossians 3.13, Paul says, Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Notice, you know, when we study Scripture, which, which many Bible teachers fail to do, they fail to recognize that the cross changed things. 
that they fail to interpret scripture based upon before the cross and after the cross. They mix it all together. But Paul doesn't do that. He, he understands that the cross made some changes here and the cross made some big changes. So we see that our sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus, all of our sins. That's why in Colossians 3.13, he says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Again, in the Lord's prayer, unless you forgive others, God will not forgive you. Well, what's the difference between the Lord's prayer and Colossians 3.13? The big difference is the cross. The cross changed everything with us and how we relate to God. I just wanted to, to throw that in there. Colossians 2.12, we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about grace. We're talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Paul talks about the working of God in Colossians 2.12, who raised Jesus from the dead. And then Colossians 3.4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So now Paul's talking about the return of Christ. So in this letter to the Colossians, Paul's talked about the death of Christ. He's talked about the resurrection of Christ. He's talked about the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. So he's seeking to identify who is Jesus. He's the revealer of God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the leader of the church. He's the originator of new life. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. Everything you want to know about God is found in Jesus. All of this is the gospel. All of these are sets of truth, are a set of truth about the gospel of grace. So remember, we're seeking to understand Colossians 1.23, which reads, if you continue in, again, it's not your faith, if you continue in the faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So now this leads us to question number seven. Paul states that he became a servant of the gospel. So the question is, when did Paul become a servant of this gospel? He says, I have become a servant of this gospel. We looked at what this gospel is, but when did Paul become a servant of this gospel, this gospel of grace? Well, Acts 26, 15 through 18 is the, the testimony of Paul when Jesus made him a servant of this gospel. Acts 26, 15 through 18 says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied to Paul. Now, Paul, get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant. That's why Paul can say in Colossians 1.23 that this gospel that you've heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which, Paul, I have become a servant. Well, when did he become a servant? When Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He said, Paul, I've, I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant. And as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. So there was going to be ongoing revelation. Paul was going to see more of the ascended Jesus. Jesus was going to give him more understanding of the new covenant, more understanding of the body of Christ, more understanding of the church. And we see that. And what you will see in me, these ongoing revelations. Jesus says, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, that happened in Colossae, from the power of Satan to God, that happened in Colossae, that they may receive forgiveness of sins 
This is after cross teaching. You, we receive the forgiveness of sins. It's not unless you forgive, then you won't be forgiven. That's prior to the cross. That's old covenant. That's old testament. After the cross, we receive the forgiveness of sins. We accept the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So how do we receive forgiveness and how are we cleansed? That's what the word sanctified means, to be, to be cleansed of all sins, to be made holy and blameless and spotless before God. By faith in me, we receive forgiveness and a holy standing before God by faith in Jesus, in me. And when Paul would go and communicate the gospel, he would communicate that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He would communicate his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his return. He would communicate the gospel to people, and they would place their faith in Jesus. All right, look at Acts twenty twenty four. Paul says, I don't place any value on my life if only I can finish my race in the ministry that I've received from the Lord the ascended Jesus of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So that's why Paul could say in Colossians 1, 23, that he was a servant of this gospel. Well, what gospel? Well, the gospel that whereas a person receives forgiveness by faith in Jesus, the gospel where a person is sanctified or made holy and blameless, free from accusation by faith in Jesus. That's the gospel that Jesus gave to Paul, that Paul received from Jesus, and that he became a servant of and a communicator of. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 1.10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings? That was the religious leaders in Jerusalem trying to win their approval with my message or the approval of, of others who disagree with my message of grace. He said, if I'm trying to win their approval, then I'm trying to please men. If I want other religious leaders to approve of my message, he says this, then I would not be a servant of Christ. So this whole context of Galatians is a religious group of people who returned to the law of Moses. They deserted grace. And Paul said, no, don't desert the gospel of grace. Don't move away from the gospel of grace. He said, if I wanted people to accept me, then I would change my message. But I can't change my message because this is the message that Jesus gave me. Remember, we just read about it in Acts 26, 15 through 18, Acts 20, 24, that Paul's a servant of Christ by declaring the gospel of grace. And he would not change his message in order for other people to accept him. Notice what Paul says about being a servant of this gospel in Ephesians 3, 1 through 4 and 7 through 8. He says, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, who gave Paul this message of grace? The ascended Jesus. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the Gentiles. The you is the Gentiles. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. Remember, the revelation of the gospel of grace came to Paul from the ascended Jesus, Acts 20, 24. He's writing about, well, what is this gospel of grace? Well, it's everything that God did for us in Christ at the cross. The cross changed everything, and Paul was so changed by it, and that's what he was communicating and seeking to help people understand. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. That's in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and up until this point of Ephesians 3. 
in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Why did Paul have such insight into the cross? Why did he have such insight into the new covenant? Why is it that Paul's letters dominate scripture? Why does Paul dominate the book of Acts, starting with Acts chapter 11 all the way to the end? Why does, why does Peter fall off the pages? And, and why do the apostles fall off the pages? It's, it's almost like Paul takes center stage in scripture. Well, it's not because of Paul. We don't worship Paul. But the ascended Jesus gave Paul tremendous insight into the gospel that none of the others received personally from Jesus. That's why Paul wrote Romans, and that's why Paul wrote uh, Galatians, this insight into the gospel that nobody had like Paul had because of this personal revelation that was given to him from the ascended Jesus. That was this gospel that he proclaimed and this gospel that he, he taught. So it's not that we're putting Paul over Matthew and Romans over the book of Matthew. It's just like we're seeking to understand Scripture in its logical context as it unfolds. And we see that the ascended Jesus appeared to Paul and gave him tremendous insight by revelation into grace that we don't see anywhere else in Scripture. That's why we see that the word grace is used seven times before the cross, about 150 times after the cross. And of those 150 times, Paul uses the word grace about 140 times. So Paul got this revelation of grace from Jesus. That's why he says, I'm reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ because I got this administration of grace by revelation from Jesus himself. Paul said, I became a servant of this gospel. That's the same words he uses in Colossians 1, 23. This gospel. Well, what gospel? The gospel of grace, which is what he's been talking about in Ephesians. I became a servant of this gospel. So we're seeking to understand Colossians 1, 23, which says, if you continue in the faith, established and firm, and not move from the hope held out in the gospel. The gospel is the same this gospel that Paul writes about. The gospel is this gospel that Paul received directly from Jesus. The gospel where we receive forgiveness. The gospel where we're made holy and blameless before God through faith in Jesus. Free from accusation. It's the gospel where God presents us when we place our faith in Jesus, holy and blameless and free from accusation. So Paul says, if you continue or if you remain or you stay in this set of truths about Jesus, his identity and, and what he's done on the cross and his resurrection. If you stay in these truths established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That's the identity of Jesus. That's the cross of Jesus. That's the blood of Jesus. That's the identity of Jesus, and, and what Jesus has done for us. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And we looked at, at Paul becoming a servant of the gospel of grace and how he became a servant of the gospel of grace through the revelation of Jesus to him. Now, let's put all this in context. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says this. Once you, that's the Gentiles, 
once you were alienated from God, you can go back to Ephesians 2 and, and see where Paul writes about the Gentiles were once alienated from God, but were brought close to God through Jesus and what he did on the cross. Doesn't mean they were saved, but the Gentiles were brought close to God through what Jesus did. And through faith in Jesus, they could enter into relationship with God. Once you, the Gentiles, were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Also, the entire world could be you there. The unbelieving world, once you, the unbelieving world, were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, this is grace, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That takes us right back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 through 21. Paul is delivering the message of reconciliation here. He is an ambassador of the message of reconciliation. And he's presented a body of truth. But now he's giving these unbelieving Gentiles, or unbelievers, whoever they may be, the opportunity to respond to this set of truth by remaining in the truth or staying in the truth or abiding in the truth or placing their faith in the truth? Would they do what the false teachers did in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19? They didn't remain because they didn't believe. If you accept it, if you place your faith in, in, in the truth, then God will present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation because you've believed the gospel because you trusted in the gospel, because you didn't move away from the gospel and move to these false teachers and these false teachings that were going on in Colossae. So continuing in the faith or remaining in the faith or abiding in the faith is a decision to accept or reject the gospel, the message about Jesus. He is the light of the world and the savior of the world. Am I going to accept that message or reject that message? Continuing in the faith or remaining in the faith or abiding in the faith is a decision to accept or reject Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Continuing in the faith or remaining and abiding in the faith is a decision to accept or reject Jesus as the revealer of God, the creator of all things, the ruler of all things, the sustainer of all things, the reconciler of all things, the leader of the church, and the originator of new life. Remaining in the faith or continuing in the faith is a decision to accept or reject the message that the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus and through Jesus, God has revealed himself to the human race and that Jesus is God in a human body. All right, continuing or remaining in the faith is a decision a person makes to accept or reject the gift of grace that saves us. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Romans 3, 21 through 25. Continuing or remaining or abiding in the faith is a decision to accept or reject the cross of Jesus, his blood, as the means of forgiveness and righteousness. Continuing or remaining in the faith is a decision to be reconciled to God through faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. In doing so, God presents the believer as holy, blameless, and free from accusation. That's Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. God presents the one who remains in the faith, the, the one who accepts the truth of the gospel, the one who believes the truth of the gospel. 
when that person accepts the truth of the gospel, God then presents that person as holy before him. Holy means we have a clean heart before God. Holy means that our heart has been cleansed of all sin by the blood of Jesus. So God presents us before him as holy, as cleansed by his blood, sanctified, Jesus said in Acts 26, 18. All right, so blameless and free from accusation is a cleared record. Where holy is a clean heart before God, blameless and free from accusation is a cleared record. Why? Because our record was nailed to the cross of Jesus. God's not counting our sins against us. We've received that truth. We placed our faith in that truth. We've accepted that truth. And now we have a cleared record before God. We have a cleansed heart before God. Well, I hope this maybe shines a little light on uh, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. It's, it's not an easy set of verses to, to try to interpret. I think the key to interpreting that passage is the word reconciled. Does reconciliation automatically mean salvation? And if I assume that it means salvation, then I'm going to think Paul's writing about believers there who persevere in the faith. And because they persevere in the faith, then God declares them holy and righteous and without blemish and free from accusation because they persevered. That's the Calvinist approach to that five point Calvinism. Arminianism would see that verse as the loss of salvation because they didn't persevere. That's the two main things because they assume that the word reconciliation means salvation. Where what I try to do is present a case that Paul's writing to an unbeliever here who has been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, but who has not responded to that in faith yet. They haven't received that reconciliation. They haven't trusted in Christ. I hope I didn't confuse anybody. I hope it was sort of clear and maybe it'll lead you to, to some more study. I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you would like any of my other teachings, check out my books on Amazon as well as my website and my YouTube channel. The links are in the details of this podcast. Again, thanks for listening to this teaching. I hope you're growing and understanding the Bible more and more every time you listen to one of these teachings. Have a great day.